0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of The Edric Show. I am your host, Edric Jerome. This is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button, ring that notification bell, and you'll get notified when I post content each and every week. My guest is Judith, Judy, <laughs> See, I got Judy Pearson, author of the new book, Crusade to Heal America, The Remarkable Life of Mary Lasker. Judy's book tells the story of one of the most important figures in the history of fundraising and medical research in the fight to eradicate cancer. Judy is also the founder of A Second Act, a nonprofit that supports and celebrates women who have survived cancer and who are giving back to the greater good. Judy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm really excited to speak with you.
0: My pleasure. Let's get right into it. So uh, first of all, this remarkable story of Mary Lasker, Uh, What inspired you to write about Mary and tell her story?
1: So I kind of ended up being sort of a a, uh, Lucas, a George Lucas here, because I wrote the sequel to the prequel. So the last book that I published in 2021 was called From Shadows to Life, the biography of the cancer survivorship movement. And Mary makes an appearance in the first chapter as she was Persuading President Nixon to sign the National Cancer Act. Then that book goes on up until present day. I was really intrigued by the little bit of research that I had done on her and thought, okay, this babe needs more more, uh, publicity. So um, I started digging and the treasure trove that I found was just remarkable. She was an astounding woman.
0: (laughs) Um, Why was she so motivated and such a passionate advocate for biomedical research?
1: I think it was, um, there are multiple reasons for that. Um, And before I answer that, let me just say that she did an oral history with Columbia University that spanned three decades they transcribed it she said it was not to be released until she died they transcribed it to the tune of about 2000 pages and it provided a wonderful resource for me so the conversations and mary's memories in the book come 100% from from her uh, oral history so she recounted a story um, her mother was very civic-minded, and they were well-to-do living in a small town in Wisconsin. It's not hard to be well-to-do in a small town in <laughs> Wisconsin. <laughs> um, I mean, if you have more money than the other people, it's it's there's not that many people. Anyway, Mary's mother was taking her to visit the family laundress, who had just had a mastectomy. And Sarah, the mother, was explaining to Mary that they were visiting Mrs. Belter, whose breast had been removed. And in Mary's memory, she looked at her mother and said, you mean cut off? And her mother said, yep. And Mary said, when she got to the scene, and at this time, Mary was born in 1899. So she would have been, I think like five or six. So very early 20th century, but all they could do was surgery. And she got to the scene and Mrs. Belter was lying on this low cot with these pitiful children assembled around her. And it just horrified Mary that there could be a disease that could be so cruel. And then she herself was diagnosed with the Spanish flu in 1918. And again, there wasn't much that could be done. And she just made up her mind that when she was able to, at some point in time as an adult, she was going to make changes. So that was kind of the first thing. But then she and her husband, Albert, discovered in 1940 that uh excuse me 1941 that something like 40 percent of the men enlisting in the armed forces because we had now engaged in world war ii were being rejected for medical conditions and she thought that in the greatest country in the world in those modern times that was ridiculous and then the third thing i think Edric was that um she when heart disease and stroke, and they separated them out in those days, now it's kind of all heart disease. But when heart disease, stroke, and cancer became the cause of death for 75% of Americans, and the only answer anyone had was, it's just God's will, that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. And she said, I I don't believe that at all. We must be able to do something. Hmm.
0: Uh, One of the things that she was able to accomplish is uh, actually change public opinion in mass with the resources and the strategies that she took. Um, But how was she able to do that, uh, given that this topic, you know, was not something that people were, you know, she, she helped improve fundraising to help fight cancer. But how was she able to to change public opinion so much so that even elected officials, presidents, others followed her lead?
1: Well, she and Albert visited the Roosevelt Institute, which is now Roosevelt University in uh, New York City. And Albert's younger brother had died of cancer in the 30s. And so, and and of course, Mary had this, this Mrs. Belter story still in her head. So they visited Roosevelt University, Ro- Roosevelt Institute, which was a preeminent research facility for America. And this is really unbelievable. Even at that time in the 1940s, much better, much more thorough, much more aggressive research was being done in Europe. So American doctors and American researchers would go to Europe, they would learn and then come back. So at Roosevelt, they knew the um, executive director and they asked him what new research was being done for cancer. And the doctor said, none. And they said, well, what research at all is being done? And he said, none. And they asked him why. And he said it was because there were no great ideas. And since cancer was pretty much paramount to a death sentence and there was nothing to be done, most Americans and certainly journalists felt that there was no reason to even talk about it. It was why it became known as the big C. It was why people weren't even told that they had cancer for fear that they'd just give up and die. And all of this, they just thought was crazy. But here's the thing. Those diseases, cancer and heart diseases, do not fall along political lines. Republicans and Democrats fall ill just in in equal numbers. And that was sort of Mary's, Mary's catch, She, in fact, was almost bodily thrown out of a senator's office who didn't want to talk to her about federal funding for medical research. And then a week or two later, he invited her back. So she took the train back to Washington, D.C. and said, I don't understand. Why am I here? And he said, because my mother was diagnosed with cancer last week. Let's talk about what we can do. So the idea that the federal government pay for research meant that Everybody, because of taxes, everybody was going to be able to do their part in in the research effort to change the tide, and that was kind of an exciting prospect.
0: Uh, you mentioned it earlier, the National Cancer Act of 1971. Um, why was that such an important piece of legislation, and uh, what role did Mary play in getting that passed?
1: So the federal funding for medical research. Um, started in the late 1940s, and Mary just didn't know how to take no as an answer. Her mother was very much like that as well. So she was able to, because of her social status um, and the wealth that Albert brought to their marriage, she was able to count among friends, um, president's wives, presidents, congressmen. So she just kept pounding the halls of Congress. But As the National Institutes of Health grew, and when Mary started, it was just singular, the National Institute of Health. So it's because of her that the first six or seven institutes actually were even created. But the larger the institute became, as happens so often with government entities, the more bureaucracy there was, the longer it took to get things approved. In fact, one National Cancer Institute director complained that by the time he got approval to pay a researcher's salary, that researcher had had to go on to find another job. He couldn't wait to see whether or not the National Cancer Institute would hire him. So, Mary got the idea because President Johnson was fulfilling, was adamant about fulfilling President Kennedy's promise to land a man on the moon before the 1960s were out. Mary went to him and said, You know, we're exploring outer space why don't we explore inner space? And I think what needs to happen is we need to have a cancer research organization independent of the National Institutes of Health, sort of NASA-like. It answers only to the president, it isn't overseen by anybody else, and all the bureaucracy that's keeping all these great researchers from doing their work would disappear. And then she got to thinking and brought on board more people uh, into a panel of consultants, very wisely, always mixing men and women, um, lay people with medical people. And again, Republicans with Democrats. And they came up with some other stipulations that um, they wanted to see happen that would hasten what Mary called the simple pill that a simple doctor could give to a suffering patient. She was sure that's all it was gonna take to cure cancer. Well, as it marched its way through Congress, two very powerful adversaries, finally met on the battlefield. President Richard Nixon was already looking ahead to 1972 presidential election. He did not want to run against another Kennedy. And yet Ted Kennedy was ahead in all the polls. Every time he said he didn't want the Democratic nomination, his numbers went up. He just wanted redemption for Chappaquiddick. Mm. So it was fortuitous that these two men wanted to make their marks in their own way and this non-political disease could make that happen. They ended up having to work together. They had to do a lot of compromising because, of course, the National Cancer Institute did not leave NIH, but it answers directly to the president, as Mary wanted. And the um, the there is a uh, an advisory board that is made up always and still is of doctors and lay people. Republicans and Democrats, men and women, to oversee the research that's being done and and do a little bit more of the day to day maintenance and and um, oversight, as I said.
0: Hmm. Um, you know, with her legislation and the the what she was accomplishing on a national level with the fundraising, but um, how can you break it down to people in terms of what her legacy meant for people's day to day lives and the impact she's still having on people who may be going through cancer uh, uh right now.
1: So here's my own personal belief. So I did not read this in Mary's um oral history, but Picture walking on a beach, which I love to do, and you're walking, you're maybe looking out to sea, you're maybe looking down at shells or stones or whatever, you may be looking head at the beautiful houses, and you completely lose track of how far you've gone until you look back over your shoulder and you see your footprints in the sand. I think much of life is like that, but particularly in the medical research field. The money that the National Cancer Act infused into research was monumental. It was $1.8 billion in 1971. So that's $11.7 billion today. It was to be spent over five years, but still that was way more money than had ever been spent. Each little step that those researchers were now able to take was one step further down the beach. And there's, I'm I'm so sorry. I can't remember the author of this quote, but he said he was a scientist and he said, if I have done great things, it's because I stood on the shoulders of giants. (laughs) And that's exactly how this worked. One discovery led to another discovery and one step to another step. So even those who are, and I myself was diagnosed with cancer 12 years ago. So although 2011 was quite a distance from 1971, It still was because of those discoveries, because of that research, that my life was spared and everyone else's who's come after me.
0: Hmm. Uh, You've been very open and you've shared your story, your personal battle with with cancer, uh, as you mentioned back uh, several years ago. Uh, You also wrote an anthology titled It's Just Hair, 20 Essential Life Lessons, and it won an National Book Award in 2012. In um, going through everything you went through with your family, that's such a, a, a personal uh, situation. Why did you decide to publicly write about it and uh, what's been the long-term impact of you writing about it to help others?
1: I think it, it's um, it's an interesting human phenomenon that many people, not everyone, but many people, when they get to the other side of some kind of a trauma want to help those who may be coming after them and that was purely my motivation i i'm a biographer by profession i'd written two biographies before my uh illness my diagnosis and continued writing i, I couldn't think clearly enough to write chapters but i continued writing um some magazine columns and and some other things and blogging so those are the chapters in it's just hair and might i add Being bald is one of the most empowering things in the world. Mm. Not only do you save money and time in the morning, but standing at the front of an airplane completely bald as a woman is a hoot. People don't know whether you're a terrorist or a nut. (laughs) It was really fun. But that aside, I just hoped both both with that book and with A Second Act, That not only myself, but other people would be able to share their stories, share what they how they were giving back in their second acts after cancer for the greater good so that those coming behind us would have an easier journey.
0: Uh, And we have a few minutes left, but tell me about second act. Uh, How can people get involved and what's the goals and uh, motivation for for that organization?
1: Second Act is in the process of doing a little bit of of change up because you can't write full time and run a nonprofit, but our um, money making activity each year was a live storytelling event. And that is going to go on the videos of all the 50 plus women who've told their stories from our stage are currently on the website at a And that's second with a two ND. And then when it goes through its transition, um, that URL will automatically point to the new one so people can watch these videos and, and the new ones that are added.
0: Uh, well, Judy, uh, after people read this book, what do you want them to walk away with?
1: Crusade to Heal America's whole purpose was to really realize another of my very favorite quotes by Margaret Mead, who was a cultural anthropologist. She said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, concerned citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So very much like the work of A Second Act, Mary Lasker's work should inspire us to do small things or big things, to better humanity, and that's really my my biggest hope.
0: Well, Judy, uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Edric show. Congratulations on your book. You. Uh, may God continue to bless you, and you, as you move on and and continue to grow and and develop as a writer, and also uh, your ability to give back and touch people who. Are definitely in need of of healing. So what you're doing is such uh, great work, and I want to congratulate you on that as well.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Uh, this has been another edition of the Edric Show. I'm your host, Edric Jerome. My guest has been Judy Pearson, author of the new book "Crusade to Heal America." The Remarkable Life of Mary Lasker. Uh, I'm assuming it's uh, available everywhere, Amazon?
1: Everywhere. Everywhere you buy books, whether it's online or brick and mortar. And you can read the prologue at judithlpearson.com.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Again, this is the place for intelligent conversation with interesting people. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Uh, Go ahead and let us know how we're doing. Leave a comment. And I appreciate you tuning in and I will catch you on the next episode.